0: The message that I have today started probably five months ago, and uh, Jesse Gentile came in and spoke on the passage I'm going to speak on. And I thought, well, that's the Lord telling me, move on, go somewhere else. But there were things that I felt needed to come out of that passage, and I added to my thoughts after hearing Jesse. Uh, We're gonna go through Luke 14, the first 24 verses. But after that, we're gonna look at some other thoughts that have been on my heart also, very much. In the first six verses of Luke 14, It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him. The question is going to come up in the explanation, why were they watching him? Why was he invited to a dinner, and why were they watching him? And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not but they kept silent and he took hold of him the man with dropsy and healed him and sent him away and the Lord said to them which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the sabbath day and they could make no reply to this they were silent if we consider what has happened here it's just like many men today they set you up because they have in their mind an answer or a direction that you're going to go this was a setup By the Pharisees, by the lawyers, to get a reaction out of the Lord. The Lord had been healing people. The Lord Jesus was doing what he did. They set him up on a day that you can't work, he's going to fail in their eyes, one way or the other. He's going to do work on the Sabbath. Or, as the Son of God that He is saying He is, He's not going to heal. He's going to let a man remain with this problem of dropsy. Dropsy is water on your body. When I first was hired on the fire department, I went up to a station up here in Padua. A very busy, busy fire station. In eight months, we had 12 responses. The, uh, when I went to Pomona, I had 29 a day. But I transferred from that station to a station in Temple City. And one of the firemen had uh, set me up, along with the captain at that station. The captain I had here in Padua didn't tell me a lot of what to do. He didn't coach me. He didn't teach me. Uh, we had 12 streets and 10 fire hydrants in my district. It's pretty easy to learn. When I went to Temple City, the fireman, who was a friend of mine, said, uh, Where is the uh, crank for turning the hose on the reel if the power goes out? I don't have any idea. Because my captain here didn't even tell me I was supposed to learn that kind of stuff. The captain was sitting around the corner. He walked around. This was a setup. They knew I would probably fail, and it was a good lesson for me. Men do that today. These men were setting up the Lord to fail. There was no question what they did. They invited the man with dropsy. They put him right in front of where the Lord would be. Men do that today. They want to see you fail. They think you're going to take a certain step. When you don't, it surprises them. These men were surprised. Jesus turns around, answers, spoke, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They didn't expect that question to come at them. They knew what the reaction of the Lord was going to be, but it wasn't that. The Lord knew their minds. He knew what they were trying to do. So when he turns around and says that, if it's their son, in verse 5, if it's their ox, their livestock, their son is their very important to them. Their livestock means money to them. He asked a question of them that they could not answer. Because if they answered, it would make them look very foolish. So they kept silent. The Savior knows our thoughts. He knew their thoughts. He knew that this was not a gesture of hospitality. Come to our house for a dinner. This was a setup from the start. In verses 7 through 11, we look at people that are inflated. The first group of people were inflexible. They came up with a decision, they made their decision, and they were not going to change their mind. This group of people that we're reading about now in 7 through 11 are inflated people. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Just like the Lord knew what the men were thinking, he sees those coming in to a dinner, seeking the places of honor, and he knows exactly what they're doing. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited. And he who invited you, both will come and say to you, give your place to another man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. Think about it. You go in and you grab the best table in a wedding. More people are coming in. They're filling up. Someone comes up and says, "Uh, this table is for the family. This is a table that is for honor. You need to go to the back of the room. You start looking. The only tables open are those in the very back. People have seen you be told, get up, walk back. It is a disgrace, is what is said here. But when you are invited, go to the last place. Go to the back of the room. So that uh, one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up. Move up to the front table. Move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." I, with the fire department and with the military, many times I had to go to the front, the place of honor. And with the military, it was because I was in the honor guard doing funerals. I would be part of a 13-man team that would go in and do the services for a burial. We knew we were to go to the front, but there were some times that we were told to go to the back. We had to understand that because even though we thought we had a place of honor, we didn't have that. We weren't supposed to be there. In a wedding, exactly the same thing. You think you know you're part of the family and where you should be, but maybe, you're, maybe it's a little different, right? But what the Lord is saying here is be humble. Humble yourself so that you do not have to be told to move. If you are told to move, you're moving up in stature and honor. The, uh, with the fire department, a lot of times, uh, which I've had to carry caskets, I've had to do the, the part of the ceremony, the front rows are set aside for the chief officers. They're not set aside for those doing the work. Sometimes we don't know where we should be in the Lord's house and we should never take on a thought that uh, maybe I should be the one speaking up here when it's not my day to speak we need to watch and let the Lord lead us and especially in hear what he's saying we need to be humble if we look at uh, Philippians 2 5 through 8 this says Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. God-man not putting Himself on the level of His Father, humbling Himself to come to this earth to die on that cursed cross, a man that was humble. In verses uh, 12 through 14, and he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. What he's saying here is people invite others because of their stature. I know I'm gonna be invited back. I'm gonna be paid back with this great dinner. No, he says, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. Well, then how can we be repaid? for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." The Lord has something for us. We're going to be blessed for the things that we have done, not because we're looking to be repaid today. We're looking for that well done, my good and faithful servant. The. The Lord announces here a great principle of Christianity and that is we should love those who are unlovely and the ones that cannot repay us. We love everyone but we need to look at the ones that have nothing to offer us. When we go and when we do something for them when we help them it's because we love them. And we're not looking for anything it's interesting uh, when you do get rewarded by someone and you well i didn't expect this to happen it it is a joy it's a wonderful joy but it's not where our heart was set up i don't go and do visitation because i expect anything back but we need to do visitation we need to call each other my wife was really having a bad day many, many, many years ago. We had little children at home. A lady from the home, Mrs. Grace, called my wife. And her comment was, I have no idea why I'm calling you. The Lord has laid it on my heart that I need to call you and just say hello. That was a lady that had. Ten or 12 kids a bunch of kids she was in the retirement home now Uh, she was with the Lord every day in prayer every day she knew through the Holy Spirit she needed to make that call she got nothing out of it nothing back from, from Cindy except for the fact that I will continue to tell that story about her how blessed this woman was how she listened to the Holy Spirit, and she made a call that made a woman, it made her day. It made her day. The parables that follow here in uh, 15 through 24, 15 through 20, are very interesting in that words that we say, people, if they just listen, can tell what liars we are. Again, in the fire station, I was working in La Puente and uh, a guy pulled up in one of those meat trucks that, uh, hey, we've got this extra meat and we're trying to sell it and I, well, one of the comments he made when he first started talking was, I've never been to a fire station before. Tell me about it. We talked about the fire station. About five minutes later, he goes, boy, that station down in Bassett on, on whatever street, he said, that really looks different than this one. It doesn't have the same. All you got to do is listen sometimes, and you realize people shade the truth. He had just come from another fire station. I've never been to a fire station before. The, uh, what is said here in these verses, 15, 15 through 20, shows how shallow people are and how easy it is to make up an excuse because what the Lord Jesus is talking about is God the Father, in these verses. It's not a man putting on a meal. It's the father giving out an invitation for salvation and how some people treat that invitation. A man, there's a moment of silence. When one of those uh, who was reclining at the table with him said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. There was silence. Why did he bring this up? Was he looking at the words the Lord had spoken earlier, and he was trying to say, oh, yeah, that was great? Or was he taking and saying, "Uh, it didn't mean anything? Was it a general remark? It's a cliche that he threw out. What do we hear today more than any other statement when we're around people that say they're believers or feel they're believers? Praise the Lord. What do they mean by that? Because every other word they say is praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Does it really mean anything to them? Did it mean anything to this man when he made that statement? Maybe it did but it probably didn't. We need to make sure if we're praising the Lord, we mean it. There's a reason behind why we said it. Just like I heard that guy lie about not being in a fire station, how many times do I have to hear somebody that does not live the life of Christ hear him say, praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. And I know he doesn't mean it by the way he's acting. We have to be very careful of that. But the Lord says to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. This is God inviting all mankind to his dinner, to his feast, salvation, forgiveness of sins. And he's giving it in a parable here. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. What's interesting back in those days is there was not one invitation that went out. There was an invitation months ahead of time saying, we're going to have a dinner. You're going to be invited. Uh, just like today for a wedding, whatever, save the date. That's kind of what was going on. Save this day. We're going to have a dinner. The, uh, verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. Ex- an excuse is an alibi. It's a lie. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land, I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Those of you that own houses, did you buy that house without looking at it? That's craziness. I need to go look at the land I've bought. Well, you can do that tomorrow, or you should have done it yesterday before you closed escrow. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Well, in that particular situation, he was going to put up his floodlights at night because the dinner's coming darkness time. He's going to get out there with his tractor and his, his oxen. There was no electricity, there were no lights. Are you gonna go plow your fields in the dark? Another alibi, excuse, a lie. You've been invited months before, you know the date. The worst excuse comes up in 20. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason, I cannot come. Uh, Man, I'd I'd say, honey, I'm taking you out for dinner. Right? Why would you say, I'm married, there's no way I can come to your dinner. We we have what gets in the way of... uh, of our lives and our fellowship with the Lord is these issues personal things that we own business decisions that we feel people can't get along without us or our personal relationships Uh, a captain made a comment to me when I was changing from one station to another. I worked at over hundred fire stations with overtime. Uh, I was assigned to over 25 different locations and I think the biggest remark ever made to me that really stuck was Put a bucket of water here now put your hand in that bucket Now pull your hand out Nobody's gonna miss you There's no hole left We can regard these three things and have it interfere with our fellowship with the Lord, our time of worship here, coming, giving a message, listening to a message, going to a Bible study. Those things that kept you away, when you die, they mean nothing. Pull your hand out of that water. There's no hole left. It covers right up. Nobody knows your hand was there it looks just perfect. It doesn't look like there's any problem. We have to consider the one that died for our sin and how important it is to have fellowship with him. If we consider the invitation that's given here in these verses uh, 15 through 20, it's God's invitation He's issued that invitation, and the question is, what am I going to do with that invitation? What is man going to do with the invitation? God's invitation is for salvation. You can't buy your way into His feast, into the dinner. You can't elbow your way in and get to the front of the line. You come to His dinner by His grace the grace of God. One of the verses that the kids learn in Awana is the best explanation of this gift. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are ye saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift. You accept it or you reject it. We used to have... A group of uh, people at this assembly, some may remember them, some may not, they never turned down an invitation for a meal, for a Bible study, for anything that was happening at your house, but they never showed up. Their culture, it was wrong to say you would not show up. It was okay not to show up but it was wrong to tell them, no, I, I can't make it. These people must have told the man, yeah, we'll be there for your dinner. And then they turn around and come up with excuses as to why they can't come or why they wouldn't come. The, uh, I'm blowing past my notes, so I have to catch up to myself. The thoughts involved here, again, are the possessions, your business interests, and your personal interests keep you away from the Lord. That's a terrible thing. The last verses, the slave came back and reported this to his master, verse 21. Then the head of the household became angry, said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes, the city, bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, bring everybody. This is God opening up his salvation to us Gentiles. The Jews said, We reject you. You're not the Son of God. You're not the Messiah. And the slave said, Master, What you command has been done and there's still room. There's not one man that cannot be given the gift of salvation. Not one. There's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways along the hedges. Compel them to come so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. There's one sin that cannot be forgiven. Rejecting the Savior. That sin he cannot turn away from. The head of the household became angry and said to the slave, go out and get the others. They will not taste of my dinner we don't want anyone to be turned away so what is our responsibility we need we need to be prepared to minister to others the way that Russ talks to the people on the street you give it to them it's the Holy Spirit's job to touch their heart I cannot save anyone. No message that ever comes from this pulpit can ever save anyone. The Holy Spirit will work in their life, and you can be used. Russ can be used. Any of us could go down and do what he does. My thoughts here turn to preparation and being prepared. If we consider the man that uh, uh, is being used as an example in these verses with the dinner, it wasn't a big deal, was it? All he had to do was go down to Stater Brothers, buy a bunch of food, uh, get his family to cook it up. Well, it's not that easy, is it? This man had to do a lot of preparation. He had to have slaves that would grow food, that would kill the animals that they were going to meet, that were going to eat. He had to uh, figure out place settings. He had to get silverware. He had to get plates. He had to cook. A lot of preparation. It wasn't just a meal. God's preparation is his son on the cross at Calvary. He knew the price that was going to have to be paid for our salvation. But here in the story that is being given, the parable, a lot is going on to be prepared for those that would come to this dinner. It doesn't just happen. He had to have a big area. He had to have money. If you're going to have a meal like this, somebody got to pay for it. He did. If he's going for the lame, the sick, the, right, they're not going to pay him back. They're not going to give a meal. He has to be prepared that this is with love, what I'm doing. The Father gave the gift as love to us. If we consider we call the big red fire engine because we've got a heart attack or we've got a fire in the kitchen, what would it be like if they pulled up and they went around and opened doors and closed doors and opened doors and closed doors? And they said, I don't know how to use this equipment, I've forgotten. I trained a long time ago, but I don't know what to do. Or you go into a hospital, and they look at each other, and they say, mm, I don't know, can we try this? Is, where's the do- is the doctor here? Oh, he's eating lunch. It's too bad. right?" Being prepared. There's a lot that goes into being prepared in our lives, in our job situation, In what we expect from the people that we're paying taxes for, when we go into a hospital, don't don't we have an expectation of how we're going to be treated and how well-trained that individual is that's there? That's preparation and being prepared. The interesting thing, we built a house up in Big Bear. And the painter, he came to the construction guy, and he said, "Uh, I want to borrow your tractor. It's a pettibone that lifts up 50 feet in the air. I need to paint up there. And of course, the contractor says, well, okay, but do you know how to work the pettibone? Yes, I do. Well, we're on a cliff. That's why he needed 50 feet. As the pettibone was rolling down the cliff, no one got hurt. The contractor went to the painter and said, I thought you said you knew how to work the pettibone. Well, I thought I did. I've watched other people do it. That was his statement. I watched people do it. If we come here to this assembly or any place at work. And someone says, can you do a particular thing? And we say, well, I watched people. Is that good enough? My, my heart is troubled a lot of times in the breaking of bread. Because we see a few men that start with the first song or they're the ones that always participate. If I only watch and I don't let the spirit work in my heart to take part. Do I really know what I'm doing? Am I really fellowshipping with the Lord? There's a lot of silent prayers that go up from men and women. But men, we have a privilege. Women are to remain silent in a meeting like this. And that's from the Lord. We have the privilege to lift up and represent this assembly, the Lord do we miss that opportunity do we miss that sweet fellowship a thought that came up at Yosemite was many people went on a 35 mile hike about 11 people many many people went up to Half Dome that's an 8 mile hike up and an eight-mile hike back. Did all of the people that went on those hikes take the Nike thought, just do it? I don't think so. My grandson was one of the ones that went on the long hike. For a week before, he put on a heavy pack and he walked two miles next day walk 4 miles next day walk 6 miles next day walk 10 miles got used to what was going to be what he had to do those going to half dome hopefully they did the same thing and that's a long hike they also had to prepare they had to have food they had to have a tent they had to have backpacks they boots they walked through the snow They crossed little streams and rivers where maybe they had to put on different shoes so their shoes didn't get wet. They didn't just do it. They trained. We are the same in this assembly. As Christians, we should be training. You don't have to get up and give a message. But when is that person at a restaurant going to say something to you that opens an opportunity to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Am I ready for that? I fail. I'm talking about me. I'm talking to me with everything that I'm saying. I fail. We must be ready. We must be prepared. Jack Montgomery, one of our elders, Many years ago, he died of cancer. About every four months, about every six months, he would get up. He'd sit right up here. He'd get up, and he would say to the assembly, and we are a family that meet here. He said, can you please get here on time next week? Please get here on time. He might have had a few other words, but that was it. To honor the Lord, he wanted us to be here on time. I have been here early, and there are men sitting here praying for the worship service. I realize fully, when you got little kids, surprises come, and you may or may not be able to get here on time. But for my wife and I, there's no excuse. And I don't get here that early. I get here maybe five minutes before. Is that enough time to prepare to get the Lord in my heart to where I understand what He wants me to say? I I don't know if it is. But I sure respect some of those others that would uh, be here on time that would pray all week for this meeting today. Uh, I prayed a lot for this meeting because I'm speaking. I, I don't pray enough. Again, I'm talking to myself. You are unfortunate or fortunate enough to be able to hear that. The one thing that Ken Daughters brought up, more than anything, in Yosemite, because he went through First John. If you can listen to those tapes, please listen to those tapes, the CDs. Uh, Joe McHale fed right in with what was being said. But the biggest thing he said is are we missing the fellowship with the Lord right now that we're going to have forever? I think it was Russ and Josh spoke a few weeks ago and that was part of their message. The fellowship that we will have for eternity. Do we really expect when we meet the Lord to say, okay, I'm ready to have fellowship with you. I'm ready to lift you up and honor you. Or should we be preparing right now in our daily lives? A lot of you do. Uh, I fail. I can do a lot better, and I know I can do that. The Lord loves us, the Lord has offered a gift to us. If I am not striving, toward worshiping Him and having fellowship with Him, I can do better. And that's what I need to do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the many blessings that have been granted to us. We thank You for the gift of eternal life, something that we could not gain ourselves we can gain it one way by saying we are sinners and we are sinners saved by grace. We're saved by the precious blood of thy son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that died for my sins on the cross at Calvary. Father, I pray that I will be a better believer. I pray, Father, that If someone comes up and asks a question about thy son that I will be able to answer that question Father. I pray that my heart will know that I can't earn this salvation that has been given to me and I pray for that sweet fellowship that I have with your son that I will strive to be able to realize that fellowship much better than what I do. Father, we thank you for this group of believers that are here. And we just pray, Father, again, that we will be the example to others that you allow us to be. In the name of thy son, we pray. Amen.